Jesus walking on the water to rescue his disciples on the sea. And the great discourse that Jesus gave of his being the, his life being the, the bread of life, that he was indeed the bread of life. And all that came from, from that great long chapter. We find Jesus now in chapter 7 having kept himself from publicly going to Jerusalem except for the fact that a feast was coming up. And it's interesting that his own brothers would tell him, listen, if you're going to, if you're going to be who you say you are, and uh, you know, rather than going around the little towns of the Galilee, you go down to Jerusalem. You make yourself known. And do this for your disciples' sake. And nobody's going to know anything about you unless you go do these things. And yet they said it with such mockery and with such sarcasm and Jesus gave him only one answer, and that was, my time is not yet come. And he encourages his, his brothers to go to, to Jerusalem for the feast. And he says, I'll, I'll come along later. Which is where we find Jesus now in our text because I want to begin reading in verse 10 rather than in verse, uh, in verse 14, even though our study will begin in verse 14. But in verse 10, we're told, but when his brethren, here we go again, okay, I will wait. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. And then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? Now these are verses we, we looked at last week. And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, he is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Throughout the Gospels, move to the next slide if you can help me here because I'm not, uh, it's not cooperating with me, so. Throughout the Gospels, no, no, not that slide, just, just the regular, previous. We're working some kinks out here. We, we've got this, this new program that we're using and it's making me a, a much better prayer warrior. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus bears certain significant and specific characteristics of his being Messiah. We oftentimes designate them as prophet, priest, and king. What I find interesting in John's Gospel is how these attributes or, or characteristics, along with others, are demonstrated. For example, when Jesus went to Jerusalem in John 2, it was really as a prince. 
to cleanse his father's house and prove and validate his messianic zeal. When he went up to Jerusalem in chapter 5, it was as a pilgrim going as all the men did for one of the, great, the, one of the three great feasts. But he also went as a physician, the great physician. But this time, Jesus went up to Jerusalem as a prophet to make an important pronouncement to the hearts of all, as we shall see later in this particular chapter. But now what we can surmise from verse 11 of chapter 7 is that all the Jews, religionists and pilgrims who were familiar with Jesus, wanted to find him. They, they were seeking after him. The religious leaders wanted to entrap him. They wanted to discredit him before the people since they wished to have Jesus arrested and ultimately sentenced to death. The common people wanted to find him so they could hear his teaching and see his miracles for themselves, some with a sincere heart, others not so much. The Jewish crowds, though, are to be commended for having sought Christ because he is to be sought. This is what the scriptures tell us, that every person should seek him until he is found. In Jeremiah 29, verse 13, it says, And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. But when it comes down to the motives of the religionists, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, their motives were evil. They were not seeking Jesus to worship him and learn from him. They were ready to harm him. They were ready to discredit him simply because they were not ready to lose the loyalty of the people and their own security and position. But the reality is that the motives of the common people as well were corrupt equally. They weren't seeking Jesus as Savior and Lord, the one to whom they owed allegiance. Remember, they were, they were seeking him out of curiosity and to see him perform spectacular miracles. This is something that we were given a little bit of a hint to back in chapter 2. Back in chapter 2, verse 23, where it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when, when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So interesting in that particular passage, he says, you know, here there, was, there were some who believed in his name when they saw the miracles. Notice when they saw the miracles, but Jesus didn't commit himself to them. He knew what was in man. And then think about this back in chapter 6, where Jesus in, in, in verse 26 says, uh, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat the loaves and were filled. So beyond just seeing the miracles, now they were following him because they had received a, a benefit of the miracle, which was that they ate the bread. So the response then of the crowds was that of murmuring and questioning. It wasn't a discontented murmuring, but, but that of whispering and buzzing about with excitement. People were asking and discussing their opinions about Jesus, but they were doing this in, in very soft voices. 
And more than likely, they were doing it off to the side, in corners and away from strangers, and especially away from the religious leaders, lest they arouse the suspicion that they were followers of Jesus and endanger their own lives. That's how it had become in those days to speak about Jesus. Some thought that he was a good man, as we read in uh, last week as well as today. Some thought that he was a good man, a man to be supported, a man to be listened to, someone that needed to be heeded. But by good, they meant that Jesus was loving and caring, that he was just and he was moral. He was giving and unselfish. He was true and he was honest and, and he was believing and he was worshipful. But take note of the inadequacy and the weakness of this belief. It sees Jesus only as a man, a good man. Yes, but still only as a man. It does not believe Jesus is the Son of Man. There is a big distinction. Others thought Jesus was the exact opposite. There were those who believed that Jesus was a deceiver, that he was a man who was deliberately deceiving and leading the people away from the true religion. By deceiving... They meant that he was misleading, that he was deluding, that he was beguiling, actually leading the people away from God, which in fact was the deception, because Jesus only pointed to his Father. Jesus only pointed to their God. But they meant that he was boasting of himself. That his own ideas, and uh, boasting of his own ideas, boasting of his own position, reveling in the admiration, adulation, and the flattery of the people, and trying to attract attention and secure a following. Listen, there's people on TV that are doing that today just for themselves. And so why were the people nervous about the religious leaders hearing them speak of Jesus? Well, the main reason is because they could be kicked out of the synagogue and removed from the fellowship. And if you were accused of deceiving the people, according to the Talmud, you could be put to death by stoning. So they had good reason to be a little nervous. The Talmud, by the way, is a record of rabbinical discussions pertaining to Jewish law, biblical interpretation, ethics, customs, and history, in a word, the Talmud was, was really just a, the, the, the rabbinic interpretation of the law. And that uh, comes to, to play in this, in, in this whole scenario here today in just a moment. Let's go back to verse 14, if you will. Verses 14 and 15. It says, uh, now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple. Now remember, he doesn't go down... Uh, publicly, doesn't go to be seen, and so he kind of goes stealthily. But about the midst of the feast, there in the midst of the Feast of the Tabernacles, he went up into the temple and he taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how knoweth this man letters, having never learned? How does this, know, how does this man know the words and, and, and have this kind of wisdom when we know that he hasn't learned that from us or from our teachers here? And I say it that way because Jewish history teaches us that during the time of Jesus, there were some 30 seminaries in and around Jerusalem, and yet the religious leaders knew Jesus never attended any of them. 
In fact, if anybody had been really, really aware of what was going on, had they checked back about 18 years earlier, they would have known of a young boy at the age of 12 sitting in the temple with them and teaching them and astonishing them even then. But obviously he was not taught by their master, and the master was Gamaliel, or Gamaliel as it were. Even as the apostle Paul was, Paul was taught by Gamaliel. Acts 22 verse 3, it says there in the first part of that verse, it says, I'm verily a man, which am a Jew, this is Paul speaking, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Goes on to say, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as you all are this day. But when Jesus did speak, he spoke with authority. And that was what astonished them. That Jesus spoke with authority. And in fact, the rabbis of Jesus' day would never speak with authority, but always quoted other rabbis as they taught. But not Jesus. He spoke with the power, the right, and the ability of one who has authority. The one that was given that authority by his father. And what made the difference? The difference, as I've just given it away, is this in verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Well, that could only be the Father. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, verse 17, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. Take note that Jesus spoke that which he received from the Father, and thus, if, if they would just listen to what he was saying, they would see that what he spoke came right out of the Hebrew Scriptures. Everything that Jesus said came right out of the Scriptures. And don't forget, it was Jesus who was the Word himself. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And what he said was not contrary to, but shed light on those scriptures, opening them up even more. So the very one who gave the law was also giving the, the proper and right interpretation. And because it was coming straight from the one who gave the law, it was given with that kind of authority. Now too often people negate what we have to say because we don't have all those fancy degrees and alphabet soup after our names. Well, they said the same thing pertaining to the disciples of Jesus back then. Listen, listen to what the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish religious supreme court of their time, 
Listen to what the Sanhedrin said after the, the arrest of Peter and John. Now this goes back and, and covers actually a couple of chapters because it covers the chapter that, in Acts chapter 3 that dealt with Peter and John and, and, and James going to the temple to pray. And, and it was there in, in, uh, at the gate of the temple that a man is, uh, is seeking alms. And, and uh, that's when you know, Peter, I guess, as a spokesman said, you know, uh, uh, silver and gold have we none, but what we have we're going to give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they pulled him straight up and all of a sudden all of his bones fell into place and all of his sinews and everything about him. And he was healed completely and he, be, he began to walk and leap, leap and praise God. And, that, and that's, that amazed everyone because they all knew that he truly was uh, a lame man until that moment. But it stunned them because they did this in the name and authority of Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. And so they're brought in for questioning. You ever see those stories on the news where, you know, people do a good, a good deed and then they're fired from their job or they're arrested or they themselves are, well, this is that kind of case, you know. So after all of this stuff goes on, here's, here's something that they said about Peter and John or is said about Peter and John, Acts 4.13, then just the first part. And I've separated the verses so that, because there's something uh, that we need to say in between. But here, in verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, this is the Sanhedrin, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and notice, they perceived they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. Now, when it says that they, that they were unlearned and ignorant men, that did not mean that they were stupid. That is not what's being said here. But they, are, they, they knew that these were men from the Galilee. They were men that were not uh, formally educated, formally uh, learned men. And, so, and, and especially that they weren't taught in Jerusalem at one of those seminaries or by under, uh, under one of those, uh, their rabbis. And this is why they were perceived as being unlearned and ignorant men. Yet they marveled and they marveled because of the wisdom that God was giving them through the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see, they didn't go to ORU. You know what ORU is, right? Old Rabbi's University. <laughs> they didn't go there. But there was something these religious leaders noticed in Peter and John. And this was their conclusion. The rest of the verse, it says, And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. You know, that's when you want to say, enough said. Enough said. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. You know, we can go into great detail about what they already knew about Jesus and what they already knew what Jesus had been saying and what Jesus died for. But suffice it to say, when they heard Peter and John, they knew that they had been with Jesus. If we take anything home today, take this home. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with his word. Spend time 
praying in the Spirit. Spend time praying with the Word and the Spirit together. And you too will be amazed. You will be amazed at what He will do for you as He teaches you and speaks to you of the things of God. Spend time. You spend time with Jesus. Don't, don't expect others to spend time with Jesus for you. Wherever you are, wherever you go, he's going to be there. All you've got to do is call upon him. He said, I'll be with you. I will be with you always. In verse 19 of our text in John, Jesus then said this, he said, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go you about to kill me? <laughs> no, Jesus, had to, Jesus had to have looked into their faces with this sad appraisal and, and read their hearts and saw the future. Well, he already knew the future. He knew that eventually they would finally get him. And they would take him. But he knew that because that's why he came. He came to die. But it just wasn't time yet. And in reading this accusation, we must remember that there was not a Jew who did not venerate Moses. That's why it's so interesting what Jesus says. Did not Moses give you the law? Because all they ever thought was, you know, Moses did everything. It was almost as if Moses carved out the law himself with, you know, hammer and chisel. But no, it was written by the hand of God. But here's the problem. And this is why Jesus says what he says. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Here's the problem. The law itself became a fetish. It became a charm. It became an idol. It became an image. It became an obsession with them. And I should say with many of them, certainly not all of them, but the religious leaders regarded themselves as, as the custodians and the interpreters of the law. And yet Jesus says, well, so Moses gave you the law, but you don't keep it. And then he said, none of you keep it. That's pretty inclusive. Because they may have elaborated its precepts and delved into mazes of legal minutia, you know, but they hedged it around with intricate detail, and yet, as the Lord tells them, they failed to keep it. And the way he points out that they did is that, you know, why, go, why do you go about trying to kill me? What is your legal position to go around killing me? You do throw out accusations. You say, I blaspheme, but I haven't. You say, I've broken the Sabbath, but I haven't. So what are you using then to break the law? Because that's what you're doing. You are not keeping the law. And in so doing, you're breaking it yourself. They were plotting his death, and he knew it, and he told them so. 
But he also knew that their plots would eventually be successful. So, how did they go about denying the accusation? Well, they did so by leveling an accusation of their own upon Jesus. Look at verse 20, if you will. The people answered and said, Thou hast the devil! That's the first, that's the first thing you were, that's the first place you all want to go. You know, when somebody crosses you, you're the devil. The devil incarnate, you know. Seen a little bit of that in the Republican uh, primary races. <laughs> Thou hast the devil. Then they said, who goes about to kill thee? You know what he's saying? Give us some names. Oh, don't ask Jesus to do that. <laughs> Notice what will happen in chapter 8 later when he starts writing on the ground during the time of their accusation of a woman committed in adultery. We'll come back to that later. That's, that's just a tease for later on. It is just astonishing to me that when these leaders rejected what Jesus said, when, when he did miracles that went against what they believed, they said that he had a demon in him. That certainly is a fearful thing to say to the one who has proven by the things he said and did that he was truly the Son of God. That's what's called chutzpah. But still they were astonished at the claims he was making for himself. And so in their estimation, Jesus was either insane or he was demon-possessed. Take one or the other, or both. And then on top of it all, they dared him to name names to his accusation that they were going to kill him. But this arguing with him and astonishment at him would, gave, would, would give way to anger toward Jesus, more anger toward him. But first of all, look at verses 21 to 24. Because Jesus, it says, answered them and he said, I have done one work and you all marvel. Now, by the way, what he's saying, is, he's not saying that he's only done one work. He's pointing out one thing that he's done out of many, many things that he's already done. We know that because even in the, in the short time that we've seen through almost three years of Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of John up to this point, he's done many things, yet he points to one thing. The one reason why it says what he said at the beginning of chapter 7, what John said at the beginning of chapter 7, that Jesus would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. It wasn't his time. He says, I have done one work and you all marvel." And he's speaking of the healing of the lame man at Bethesda. And we'll get to that in a moment. But verse 22, Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And once again, he says, now see, it's not Moses here. This goes all the way back to Abraham. Circumcision, but it becomes certainly a part of the law later on. But, but it was given by God much earlier on. So Moses therefore gave unto you, therefore, uh, I should say, Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers, and you on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. So here is the point that Jesus is trying to make. He says in verse 23, if a man on the Sabbath day receive circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, 
Are you angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? In other words, babies are going to be born every day in the Jewish community. You know, for all the Jewish people, every day a child is going to be born. There's not going to be a day that, is, that, that cannot be, you, you cannot plan it to not have a children eight days before circumcision. If circumcision ends up being on the Sabbath, can't do it. Which means, therefore, on the eighth day, if it lands on, a, on your child to have circumcision on the Sabbath, then it's okay to do it. What is the point that Jesus is trying to make? First of all, he says in verse 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. The Apostle John brings us back to the underlying cause of Jewish hostility toward Jesus, and that is his refusal to bow to their regulations and rules regarding the Sabbath. Jesus reminds them once more of the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda some considerable time before. That miracle on the Sabbath obviously continued to be a painful sore and remained the basis for their subsequent hatred. It wasn't just the miracle that astonished them, not even the fact that Jesus had taken on the whole religious establishment by performing that miracle on the Sabbath. It was the fact that he had done this miracle deliberately on the Sabbath, unapologetically on the Sabbath, with foresight on the Sabbath, prudence and obvious intent, and that he claimed divine authority for doing so. And as we shall see, they never forgave him for that or for his other Sabbath miracles. Never. And if they would have only heard the words of Jesus instead of closing him out, things would have been different. First of all, Moses didn't institute circumcision, as we already stated, it was given to Abraham. But on the eighth day, the male child was to be circumcised, and that could fall on the Sabbath day. By the way, if you need to know, in Leviticus 20, uh, 12, verse 3, it says, And in the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And thus, in their minds, listen, it was okay to mutilate the flesh, but not to heal on the Sabbath day. Kind of an interesting perspective, isn't it? It was okay to mutilate on the Sabbath, but not to heal. Isn't that absurd? Jesus was trying to get them to think through what they believed. Now, folks, I think that this is, a, this is something that we need to consider here very strongly as believers in Jesus Christ. We need to think through what we believe. This is why we teach the word from Genesis to Revelation, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Why? Because we need to think through what we believe so that we can give answers to every man of the hope that lies within us. Know why you believe. Know what you believe and why you believe it. I can, I can do my part in, 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 in teaching you and, and, and bringing it down to the, the level that everyone can understand and all of that. But you have to do your part in this. You have to think through these things. So think through what you believe. And Jesus was trying to get them to think through by going to Moses, by going to Leviticus on this issue of the circumcision. To say, what I did on the Sabbath was honored by my father because it brought healing to someone. 
Why wait a whole day? Let's heal him now. Besides, isn't the, you know, the Sabbath was for man, not man for the Sabbath. You all are misinterpreting everything that has been given to you. And you've built laws upon laws around the laws that was already given to you and you've made it harder rather than easier. So now when people judge, they mostly judge by appearance. This is why Jesus said uh, what he said in the previous verse about judging by appearance. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Because when people judge, they mostly judge by appearance. How a situation looks and how they feel about it. That might be the very destruction of our nation at this next presidential election if we only go vote by what we feel rather than what we hear. And judge righteously. That's why I've been saying over the past few weeks that we need to be discerning about these things, even that, when it comes to uh, you know, our, our day-to-day lives in, in, as, as American citizens. Because we're Christians here, we are uh, citizens of heaven, but we are still here, and we have some effect on what's going to take place for the next four years if the Lord tarries. So, I mean, there's, there's a need for us to be discerning. So this applies in that particular way. For the most part, that is not a righteous judgment just to see on and base things on appearance. When we judge things, it must not be according to how we feel or what we think, but by what God's Word says. Consider these words in Isaiah 26, verses 9 through 11, where it says, With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me I will seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Very simply, those who are in the world, those who are even the wicked, are going to learn righteousness. They're not going to learn righteousness just by being on the earth and hearing somebody say it. That they're, they're actually going to really learn righteousness when the Lord brings judgment. That, that's pretty much the interpretation here. And in verse 10 it says, Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness in the land of uprightness, will he, uh, uh, he deal unjustly, and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Let me read that again. Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness in the land of uprightness, will he deal unjustly, and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. The Lord, when thy hand is lifted up, or Lord, when thy hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they shall see and be ashamed for their envy at the people, yea, the fire of thine enemies shall devour them. Now, why do I bring this particular passage up? Because in a word, the wicked will learn righteousness only when God judges them. The wicked will learn righteousness only when God judges them. By living in the land of promise where the righteousness of God is revealed is no guarantee that a person will live righteously. A favorable environment is not enough. People's hearts need to be changed. And this is the reason why it is so important for us to realize that when we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we were sinners. We, we, we were born into sin. I mean, we, we knew that when we finally came to that realization that we could not save ourselves. Or that we could not be above God. And when we came to that realization that we were sinners, when God opened our eyes with the light of his word, and he opened our hearts for us to see the sinfulness of our hearts, and we cried out for mercy. And we confessed with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in our hearts that he's risen from the dead. 
everything changed. We wept over our sin. We repented of our sin. And righteousness came. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. But why? Because it came through judgment. The judgment of our sin was put upon Jesus. We will learn righteousness when judgment comes. By believing in Jesus Christ, righteousness has come because the judgment already came upon him. See the preciousness then. The preciousness of seeing this. When people reject Jesus Christ to the very end and judgment comes, what will they learn? Righteousness, and then it'll be too late. As we're told in the prophets. The summer is ended. The harvest is over. And we're not saved. Time now to get ourselves right with Jesus Christ. So when Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, he was not doing evil, he was doing good. He was meeting a personal and bodily need of a man, a need much more desperate than a religious and ceremonial need. Jesus told the people to judge not according to appearance, but to look at what he did. And to look realistically, honestly, and objectively, if a person did so, he would see that Jesus was not full of evil, but full of good and full of righteousness. He would see that Jesus truly was the Son of God. How are we judging? Are we judging by appearances only? Or are we judging with a righteous judgment because we have looked into the Word of God and we have said, this is true. This is the light. This is reliable. This cannot be challenged. Every word of God from Genesis to Revelation is true. And it all in one way or another points to Jesus Christ. And everything that he has said is fulfilled in him. I want to leave you as we come to the table of communion this morning with 1 Samuel chapter 16. And the search for a king after, after Saul. Saul who was chosen by the people. Now Samuel is called to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. And there he says, I want to see your sons. And they parade the sons of Jesse before him. And he comes to one that looks pretty good. Eliav, I believe. And yet... This is the word that is given to Samuel. Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature because I have refused him. For the Lord sees not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And Jesus knows our hearts even now and has always known them. We've never been able to hide him. And there's no, no reason to ever think that we should. While there are things that we may keep from others, hopefully prudently and judiciously, we can't keep anything from the Lord.
as we come to the table of communion this morning. Let's consider the, the condition of our heart. Have we put aside our arguments and had the attitudes of our heart changed? I pray that they are. Join me in prayer. Father, today as we come now to the table of communion and fellowship with you, strengthen our heart and our understanding, Lord, of what we've learned. May we continue, Lord, to, to learn of you, to grow in your goodness and mercy. But as we observe our hearts now, Lord, we want them right before you. We want to be able to go to those that we need to go to and say, forgive me. We want to go to others to say, I love you and I thank you and I put aside anything in my heart towards you. We want to be able, Lord God, to just stand fast and stand strong as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Lord, we want to be ready for anything because anything can happen in these last days. But greater are you, Lord, that, that is in us than he that is in this world. And for this, we thank you and bless you. And as we take this bread and cup today, may it remind us of the great work that you've done for us. Strengthen our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.